0: We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're looking at the time period Jesus spent on the earth as a man, uh, most importantly, teaching who he is and what life is all about. And we realize that his life is documented in four books in the Bible called the Gospels. And three of them are written by disciples who lived his life with him during his three years of earthly ministry. And the fourth gospel is written by Luke, who was a physician and a historian. And these books document Jesus's life and we're gonna be in a couple of these books today. And as I love to say always, you don't have to agree with what we teach, with what we say. We teach what we believe based on our research. If you disagree, that's okay. But honor the importance of the subject that we're looking at, which is God, the universe, eternity, what happens after death. Honor the importance of those questions by doing your own diligent research and disagree with us because you've done your own research and found something better if you believe that to be true. But don't dismiss it just because it's not what you would like to hear. So I'm going to lead us through this text and explain things as we go so that Lord willing, by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit among us today, we can understand what God would want us to hear from his word today. And last week, we looked at one of the most incredible miracles Jesus performed during his time on the earth, the raising of a man named Lazarus from the dead, and we discovered some beautiful and very moving ways that our story parallels Lazarus' story. This week, we're going to be reminded of one of the most simple yet profound truths about how faith and God's provision work together, our part and God's part. And Jesus is also going to let us know some details about the rapture of the church, and we're going to find out that on that day, things will be far more normal than many expect, far more normal than many expect. Let's jump in, we're going to begin in John 11, verse 45. John 11, verse 45, and then after a little bit we'll turn to the Gospel of Luke. It says this, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus has just healed and raised from the dead, and had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. When you can raise people from the dead, It's a boost to your credentials. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now now is this not unbelievable when you consider this? It said some of the Jews who had seen the things that Jesus did, not heard the rumors, they had seen him raise a man from the dead. They had seen Lazarus, as we discussed last week, we don't know, shimmy, shuffle, hop out of the grave in his grave clothes alive where he had been previously dead. They'd seen him do that. And instead of saying, wow, we should really listen to what this man is saying. If he says he's Messiah, maybe he is. Their response is instead to tattle to the religious leadership. To tattle to the religious leadership. This is like the kid, you know, when you would hang out with a group of friends and one of you would do something amazing Like, fit an unbelievable number of jelly beans up your nose. More than any other kid could. But there's always that one kid who doesn't understand the gravity of the accomplishment and who has to rush and tell mom that you were pushing jelly beans up your nose. That's what these kids are like. That's what these guys are like. It's just one more example of a truth that holds true even in our day. And this is the truth. It's not miracles. It's not signs and wonders that cause a person to find God. It's a sincere desire for truth. Write this down. The obstacle to faith is not hard evidence, but a hard heart. The problem isn't hard evidence. The problem is a hard heart. We see this over and over again. They're asking Jesus for a sign, and yet when he raises someone from the dead, they still don't believe. That's unbelievable. For those who say, give me a sign, no sign will ever be enough. And by the way, what did Jesus say was the only sign he would give as evidence of his being God? His resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, it's the one thing I want you to test me on. He put it out there. He says, check it out. Do your research. Investigate it. The whole claim of Christianity doesn't hang on all the miracles Jesus did. It hangs on the resurrection because Jesus himself said, Test that out. Check it out for yourself. See if it's true. And that claim still stands true for today. If there's one thing you can test for yourself, it's the evidence for the resurrection. It's the single most important field of apologetics. If you're a skeptic, don't worry about any other field. Focus on the resurrection because let's be honest, if you're looking at evolution or young earth, old earth, if you're looking at life after death, none of that stuff matters if Jesus really rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, then he really is who he says he is. And everything else is answered. Everything comes down to the resurrection. If you love apologetics, I encourage you to be an expert on the resurrection ahead of every other area. In verse 47. It says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. So this would have been a council made up of high priests, past and present members of their families and Pharisees and they didn't have any authority to take any judicial action. That authority remained with the Romans who were occupying Israel at the time but they were the most powerful Jewish body in the country at the time. And in Jesus' day, the Sadducees were the ruling class of Israel, the Pharisees were a vocal minority. However. They both found common ground in their hatred of Jesus. And so they said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here's what's happening. They, they see what Jesus is doing. They recognize he's performing very real miracles, but their thoughts are not along the lines of, oh, praise God, the the one we've been waiting for is finally here. Instead, their concern is, "Ah, I can see where this is going. The Jewish people are going to rally around Jesus, and he's going to lead a political revolution against the Romans. And here's the thing, we often hear that's what they wanted him to do. The people may have wanted him to do that, but the religious leaders didn't because they knew their history. You see, they knew there had been several attempts to revolt against Rome already and they all ended disastrously because the reason Rome was able to establish such a powerful empire is because they absolutely crushed any attempted uprising so it wasn't just we will crush those soldiers in the uprising it's we will kill them then we'll go kill their families we'll kill their children and we'll burn the villages that they came from just so that everybody knows this is a terrible idea to take on Rome and so while the people are hoping that Jesus will rise up and lead a revolt against Rome, the Pharisees are looking at him and saying, this is going to be disastrous. Yeah, this guy does some miracles, but he also tells parables about sheep. I don't think that this guy can single-handedly conquer the Roman army. They're expecting a Superman-type figure to come along, and so they're thinking if the people rally around him, and he really does take on the Romans. The end result is going to be disastrous. Our people are going to be slaughtered. They're going to take away the little bit of power we have. We're not going to have any type of position of authority at all. We're going to lose the few rights and freedoms that we do have. Verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that, and then underline this, It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas is speaking from his own position of selfish concern and ambition. He's concerned about the political security of Israel. He's concerned about keeping their positions of power. He has no idea that he's unwittingly prophesying the death of Jesus. He's just saying, hey, this is a good thing. Let him die. He can be a hero to the people, but there's no rebellion. This is all good. It's gonna work out beautifully. He has no idea that he's prophesying the death of Jesus who would lay down his own life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for all humanity, and offer forgiveness to all peoples. That's a good reminder because Caiaphas is not actually supposed to be the high priest. A man named Annas was the next in line to be the high priest, and he had actually been made high priest before Caiaphas. Caiaphas was appointed by a Roman prefect because he was buddy-buddy and considered to be somebody who would play nice with the Roman occupiers. That's how he got the job. So him and Annas were sort of co-high priests. And yet, the original role of the high priest, according to the law of God, was to reveal the will of God. And here we see God using Caiaphas to do just that to prophesy what Jesus is going to do. Even though Caiaphas is actually trying to kill Jesus, God still uses him to get things to exactly the place he wants them to be. He even uses Caiaphas to say the exact words that he once said, and Caiaphas is even acting of his own free will. That's a good reminder in today's day and age and political climate around the world, that every person who is in a position is ultimately there because of God. God allows them to be. And we're going to read a verse that I love over and over again in times of political upheaval. It's Proverbs 19:21. I love the way the ESV says it. It says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now the translation says many are the plans in a man's heart, but the will of the Lord prevails. To me it's one of the most astounding things about God that we live in a, a universe and a world where there's an infinite number of free will decisions we all make. It, it's not just a, a linear flow chart, but it expands into multiple dimensions because this decision creates an alternate possible future, this one, this one, and when you multiply out the number of free will decisions made by the number of people in the earth, it, it's infinite. It's infinite, and yet the supremacy of God is that he can say, okay, everybody Do what you want. Exercise the sovereignty I've given you. Exercise your free will. You can take as many left turns, as many rights as you want. I still know exactly where you're going to end up, and it's going to be exactly where I want you to at the exact moment I want you to. And it's astounding to me that in this, this sort of microcosm of political chaos that we see here, just in and around Jerusalem, there's chaos, there's upheaval, there's Satan's forces trying to destroy the Son of God, and yet everything will play out exactly as the Lord wants it to. He's in full control of the situation. It's astounding, it's astounding, the supremacy of God. In verse 53, it says, Then from that day on, They plotted to put him to death. And the original language makes it clear that at this point, it's firmly established. The only thing left to be done is the doing of it. They're not hoping for an opportunity. This is a thing where the word is out. Everybody knows. You see Jesus. They've been ordered to let them know. They're going to go and just kill him. That's their plan. When they go and grab Jesus in the garden and they arrest him, it's not to try him. They've already found him guilty of blasphemy. That's what's happened here. It's simply to carry out the sentence. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city named Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Town's about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, far away enough to be safe temporarily from the murderous intentions of the religious leaders. And apparently after hanging out in Ephraim for a little while, Jesus traveled north through Samaria and into Galilee one last time. Most likely he joins friends and family in Galilee as they make their journey south to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is of course the Passover where Jesus will be crucified. Now we're gonna shift books just to keep this all in chronological order. Turn with me if you would to Luke 17. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're just working through his life chronologically, so we're arranging these things in the order that they happened. And we pick it up in Luke 17, verse 11. It says, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. If you had leprosy, you were religiously defiled. You were unclean. You'd have to live outside of any village in any town and keep a minimum distance of 150 feet downwind from other people to ease their fears of you infecting them. That's why these lepers are standing at a distance and yelling to communicate with Jesus. They really would have to do the thing when they would walk through any area of yelling, unclean, unclean. It's such a perfect picture of you and I. You see, we were in a hopeless situation. We were slowly dying and destined to spend eternity in the place of death because of our own sins. We'd been separated from God, and all we could do was cry out. Our only contribution is to cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And praise God, he did. He did. Verse 14, so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests According to the law, a person would not be considered legitimately clean from leprosy until a priest had inspected them and confirmed the fact. Thus, by commanding these lepers to be inspected, Jesus is honoring the law, but he's also ensuring that the miracle is verifiably documented. There would be a legal, legitimate record of this healing, and anyone who sincerely investigated it would be able to confirm from the evidence that it was a real miracle. I'll just say this in passing, I believe there's many high profile healing ministries who would benefit from doing more to follow the example of Jesus in this area. And in many third world countries, there's nothing that can be done, but in places like America and Canada, I would encourage any of us who experience healing to do everything you can to collect the evidence. Go get the tests, go get the results, uh, go get the doctor's notes and do everything you can to document what God has done. Journal about it so you remember the details, and the reason for that is so that God can get the absolute maximum amount of glory possible. You know, I'll I'll never forget a true physical miracle that happened in my life when I was a teenager, and I had a, a disease in my knees called osgood schlatter disease. Every time I say that, Wes accuses me of swearing at him in German. What it was, it was just simply the the muscles in my knees were growing faster than the bones were and so they were crowded and there was tremendous pain in my knees whenever I would play sports. And I was 13 and I played sports all the time and uh, I had the x-ray and you could see it right there on the x-ray that it was messed up and we had uh, x-rays taken by the guy who happened to be the team physician for the Dallas Cowboys at the time, was just coming through and treating sports injuries in the country I was living in at the time. And, uh, and then I went to this conference in England, went to this youth conference, this Bible conference for a week, it's kind of wild, it's like 20,000 people camping, it's like Woodstock, but with Jesus, I guess you'd say, and uh, slightly cleaner, only slightly, because there's a lot of teenagers there, and uh, just praying, worshiping God one night, and God just says, I've healed you, and I'm like, cool, cool and uh, somebody up front said, if any of you have been healed, would you just come up and give a testimony of that? So I came up and said I've been healed, and a guy came up to me afterwards, said I have the same thing, would you pray for me? I prayed for him, he got healed as well, went back, got x-rays, and it completely disappeared, completely disappeared. This was something that was supposed to stay with me until I was 22, 23, and it was an instantaneous, immediate, and complete, and verifiable miracle. It's amazing, does wonders for my faith, to this day, and so I just say all that to encourage you, whenever God does something great in your life, take a detailed snapshot of it, you know. When he does a financial miracle, write down the numbers, journal it, so that God can be glorified as you look back and you recount that story to encourage others. Now, this is huge, Jesus has given these 10 lepers a command, but check out when their healing comes. It says, and so it was that, underline this, As they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. Did you catch that? As they stepped out in faith and obeyed the Lord, they were healed. As they stepped out in faith and obeyed. Amos 3.3, I say it all the time because it's one of the defining principles of the Christian life. Can two walk together unless they are agreed. As these men got into agreement with God by obeying God, they experienced healing. So make a note of this. When we obey God we align ourselves with his will, the greatest position of blessing we can ever find ourselves in. When we obey God, we align ourselves with his will, the greatest position of blessing we can ever find ourselves in. Now, I don't think this is some sort of wacky prosperity gospel or anything like that. It's, it's very simple. Here's what the principle says. It says, when you choose to do things God's way, when you choose to honor God by doing things his way in any area of life, There's no better position you could be in to be blessed by God in that area of your life. It's very simple. If you want your marriage to be blessed, do marriage the way God says to do marriage. There's no better way to be blessed. If you wanna be blessed in your finances, do finances the way God says to do finances. There's no better position to be in to be blessed, whether it's relationships or work or time management, whatever it is, find out what the word of God says. Submit to what the word of God says. That is the very best position you can be in to allow God's blessings to work and flow in your life. When we obey God, we get in alignment with his will. And we're naturally gonna experience blessings when we're doing things his way. His ways are always best, always. But Let me explain what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that you don't take your meds because you decide that's your step of faith. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a moment where the Lord has spoken to you. The Lord has spoken to you. We can get in so much trouble when we invent our own step of faith that God never told us to take. And I've seen people make disastrous mistakes doing this. We're gonna open a, a cell phone store. Uh, why? It's a step of faith. You have any experience in retail? Nope. You ever run a business? No. Nope. Did God tell you to do this? No. Nope. It's not a step of faith. It's a fine line between a step of faith and a step of stupidity. And I wanna let you know, you wanna take a step of faith, not a step of stupidity, and then stand before God and go, what's up with that? God's like, what, I didn't tell you to do that? Why would you do that? If you had asked me, I would have told you it's a terrible idea. This is when God has clearly given you an instruction, where he's clearly told you to do something. That's what we're talking about here, and that's why I'm so thankful for God's word, because I don't have to wonder what God is saying to me when it's right in his word. and whatever situation I'm facing, there is something in the word of God for me and for my situation. There's something for me to submit to, there's something for me to agree with and get in alignment with God on. And so the very best way for us to begin obeying God and walking in agreement with him is by simply obeying what he's already said In his word, make a note of this. Start by obeying what the Lord has already spoken through his word. Start by obeying what he's already spoken in his word. The Holy Spirit may speak to you directly about your personal situation. That's awesome. Can happen in a time of prayer or worship. But it's the foolish and I would argue intentionally ignorant person that ignores what God's word says to them while claiming to be waiting to hear from the Lord. And it's sometimes the case that we go to God for a second opinion which doesn't make sense because he's the same one who wrote the Bible. It's not like now he's gonna say, yeah, I'm not really feeling what I wrote in my eternal unchanging words, so now I'm gonna offer a different way to do things. He's just gonna say the same thing. At least when you read it in the Word, there's no risk of your bias or my bias getting in the way. So I always love to counsel everyone, including myself, begin with what you know the Word of God says. Sometimes when we say we're confused and we don't have clarity, it's because we just don't want to deal with what we know the Word has already spoken to us. As they went... They were cleansed. When God gives a command, we gotta be a people who respond. Maybe the Lord has said to you, forgive your spouse, but what you said is, change them, Lord, and that will be the sign that it's time for me to forgive them. Or you need to get out of this unhealthy relationship, and your response has been, Lord, I'll know that's true when you provide me with a new option. Or uh, perhaps, you know, the Lord has said, Trust me with your finances, and your response has been, increase my finances, and then I'll know that will be my fleece before you, Lord. That'll be the sign that it's time to start trusting you. And we can each fill in our own area of struggle. None of us are immune from this. But when God speaks, when the Lord commands, we must obey lest we miss out on a blessing that he desires to release into our lives, a healing that he desires to release into our lives. Verse 15, and one of them, just one, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God. Underline, loud voice glorified God. I challenge you to find anywhere in the Bible where there's a phrase along the lines of, with a quiet voice glorified God. And fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks just underline thanks and he was a Samaritan so Jesus answered and said were there not 10 cleansed but where are the nine were not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner apparently the nine other lepers were just looking for a solution to their problem once they were healed they had everything they needed in their minds and before we judge them too harshly We can all see a bit of ourselves in these men, can't we? How many of us would say that our times of greatest intimacy with God, our seasons of most intense faith, were when we most desperately needed his help with something? And how many of us maintained that intensity of devotion once the crisis subsided? I didn't, but that's why communion is so important, because communion is where we come every single week And be reminded that our need for Jesus is always urgent. It's always urgent. I need thee, I need thee, I need thee every hour. Every hour. Make sure you take communion today. Nevertheless, only one leper returns. Verse 19, and he said to him, arise and go your way. And then underline your faith. Your faith has made you well. And the word well that's used there is the Greek word sozo, it means saved. So it's saying your faith has made you well, but that word sozo refers to the the full sphere of salvation, which doesn't just include justification from sin, but it includes the beginning of that sanctification process, that inner healing, that being made Whole And what is happening is this man is being made whole on more than just a physical level. His faith in Jesus is apparently more than for just healing. It's for salvation. He's been made new on a spiritual level as well. And if you or I find ourselves in the place where we feel like we're falling apart, like we could use some being made whole, we would do well to follow this man's example and come before the Lord in the posture an attitude of praise and thankfulness. And as we do that, you know, the Lord always does something fresh and refreshing in us. Always. May we not be quick to forget that. It is good to give thanks to God. It's good to give thanks to God. Make a note of this. Praise and gratitude toward the Lord bring healing to the soul. Praise and gratitude toward the Lord bring healing to the soul. I made a note in my notes here. I actually made myself the note. Rant about this. And so, I don't have the energy to do a proper rant, so please forgive me. Um, But I I love to to just mention that, you know, worship, praise are not spiritual gifts. They're not anywhere in the list of spiritual gifts. Now, there are gifts of, of music But having a heart that loves to worship God, that is thankful to God, that is willing to openly express gratitude to God, that's not a spiritual gift. It's not in any of the lists in the New Testament. And the reason is because it's for every believer. It's not a gift, it's a response. It's the only response to the God who loves us and has saved us. And so none of us are allowed to say, I'm not a worshiper, I'm not a worshiper. I don't like to say out loud that I'm thankful to God. How long have you been a believer for? 47 years. But I'm not ready to do that. Whether it's decades or days, gratitude is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Expressed gratitude is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And you know why it's so important to express it? Because we know from the Bible over and over again that what comes out of our mouths has a profound effect on us. And so when you speak out gratitude and thanks and praise to God, man, it does something to you. And one of the most amazing things about church is that when you speak it out, when you sing it out, other people can hear you. I know, shocking, right? But other people can hear you. Other people will actually hear you. And there's something supernatural that happens through that. Even when we pray together, It's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's not just about can I get through this prayer without sounding stupid. It's not what it's about. It's about somebody else hearing that you're thankful. And you know what it does? Your your angle on that is gonna be slightly different to theirs and to mine. And when I hear somebody else express gratitude to God, every single time what it does in me is it reminds me of how thankful I am to God. Because I'm hearing somebody else say it and I'm just able to say yes, you are so right. He is so good, he is so good. And so I want to encourage you that, that gratitude and thanks to God, it's not a gift. And so there's nobody who can say, oh, I'm not a worshiper. I'm not a thankful sort of Christian. That's not my thing. It is your thing. You know how I know? Because you're going to do it forever. That's how I know it's your thing. It's gonna be all of our thing, forever. So I wanna encourage you, you are a worshiper, be someone who is full of thanks, be someone who is full of praise, and it'll be a blessing to those around you. Now before we keep going, we need to stop and have a little bit of revision. Because the time period we read about in the four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is known as Jesus' first coming. It's the time when he came to the earth to live as a human man, live the perfect life that we could never live, then die in our place for our sins on the cross, only to rise victorious over death on the third day. The first coming was all about Jesus' death and resurrection, making payment for our sins so that our relationship with God could be reestablished. Now the Bible makes it very clear, as does Jesus himself in his teachings, that he's coming back again for a second coming. And at his second coming, Jesus will not return to the earth as a human man, but as God in all his glory. He will destroy the armies of earth who are opposed to him, and he will literally rule the earth as its king for a thousand years. And his presence, just his presence on the earth, will restore the earth back to an Eden-like state. Disease will end, famine will end, war will end, Everything that's wrong with the earth will be put right and Satan will be bound up for those thousand years. Now we also believe, as we read and study the scriptures, that there will be a rapture of the church, a taking up of the church. We believe that all those who belong to the Lord are going to be removed from the earth by Jesus before the catastrophic events of Revelation 6-19 through are unleashed upon the earth in the time period known as the tribulation. The tribulation, if you don't know what it is, is is distinct from any other period of suffering on earth because the tribulation is God's wrath upon the earth, the full wrath of his judgment on those who have rejected his son, Jesus. That's what's going on. It's really unprecedented. The rapture, is Jesus coming for his church. The second coming is Jesus coming with his church. So the rapture happens, the church is removed, Revelation chapter six through 19 happen, the tribulation, then the second coming happens, Revelation 20, Jesus returns to the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years with his church. And as you read through everything the Bible says, about the reappearing of Jesus in the future. So if you took every single prophecy in the Bible about him coming back, about the future, you really find that it falls into one of two piles, the second coming or the rapture. And if you view them as one event, you're gonna find some very, very confusing and conflicting things. So if you don't believe in a rapture, then you have to answer some things like, well, why does it say we're going to meet him in the clouds? It doesn't make sense that we go up to the clouds to meet him and then immediately come straight back down to earth. Why don't we just stay here if he's coming down here? There's all kinds of contradictions like this if you don't divide them and recognize that there's two separate and distinct events. So we build our belief in the rapture on a lot of things, but especially on the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to give you one quick reminder of the order, the chronology of Revelation and why we believe this. In Revelation. Chapter one of Revelation, make a note of this. The lampstands are identified as the churches. The lampstands are identified as the churches. If you don't know what we're talking about, go home and read Revelation one today. Obviously, I can't do a whole Revelation study this morning. This is just an aside as a little bit of revision and, and maybe to get you digging into this if you've never done this before. So the lampstands in chapter one are identified as the churches and together they are the complete church of Jesus, the New Testament church. Then we see that chapters two and three are letters to those churches. They're letters to those churches. And then chapter four begins with the apostle John who is receiving this revelation being called up to heaven. And then we find in chapter four that those same lampstands are now also in heaven. They've gone up to heaven with John, they've moved from earth to heaven at the same time as John, and that's why we say that the church is there with John in heaven, with Jesus, and we believe that the rapture is marked by Revelation chapter four, verse one. As an aside, we also notice that the 24 elders in Revelation four are identified as believers, the redeemed, the church, basically again. And they cast their crowns into the glassy sea that is before the throne of the Lamb, and they do that before the Lamb opens the seven-sealed scroll, which unleashes the tribulation. The order of these events is very, very clear in the book of Revelation. It might be confusing if you've never heard this before, so you can pick up our Revelation series in the back and we'll walk you through it. But it's just a small example of why we hold to what's called a pre-trib view of the end times, where the church is raptured pre-tribulation before the tribulation comes on the earth so we're not looking for the second coming we're looking for the rapture we'll return to the earth with jesus at the second coming we'll rule and reign with him on the earth and that's just a quick bit of revision to help us make sense of some of the subjects that are going to come up now in the text verse 20 now when he was asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god would come So recognize that the Pharisees are asking this question, most likely mockingly. We know that they don't believe he's the Messiah, so what they're saying is, uh, when's the kingdom gonna come, Jesus? When are you gonna bring the kingdom down to earth, you know, and destroy all worldly powers and take your place on the throne in Jerusalem? When are you planning on doing that? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The literal translation is the kingdom of God is among you or in, in the midst of you, entos in the Greek. And Jesus is, of course, referring to himself. When he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying, I'm right here. I am right here in front of you because wherever the king is, you'll find his kingdom. If Jesus has been welcomed into your heart, then his kingdom is in your heart. If he's been welcomed into your home his kingdom is in your home and on that glorious day in the future when Jesus sits on his throne in Jerusalem the kingdom will truly come to earth because where the king is there will the kingdom be. The Pharisees concept of the kingdom of God was an overpowering Messiah the the Jewish son of God who would absolutely crush all the Romans and restore Israel to its rightful place of preeminence on the world stage and As we said, the concern was with Jesus, they were thinking he's not that guy and this is gonna be bad for the Jews if any sort of uprising happens. And what they didn't understand, what Jews still don't understand to this day is that Messiah, Jesus, will come not once but twice to the earth. The first time he came as the suffering servant, the second time he'll come as the conquering king. And in the minds of these Pharisees, their greatest need was freedom from Roman occupation. What was their real greatest need? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Just like us, they need forgiveness more than anything else, but they're too proud to see their need for forgiveness. They really believe that they can measure up to God's standard of perfection, so their pride has made them blind to what Jesus has come to do, and he's trying to explain to them that his first coming is all about the kingdom of God coming into the hearts of men, while his second coming will be about the kingdom of God coming onto the earth. You see, if God just showed up on the earth in his full glory state, and started fixing the world and making it great, but he hadn't dealt with our sin, it would be like a party that none of us were invited to. They didn't understand that. Hey, if, if Messiah comes, if the kingdom comes right now, but your sin isn't dealt with, you can't come to the party. You're not welcome. Your sin's not paid for. You're not clean enough to be in the presence of God. We needed to be washed of our sin before we could approach God. And Jesus came to solve that problem at his first coming. Change always happens from the inside out. From the hearts of men it travels outward to their thinking and behavior. Our hearts have to be changed before our world can be changed. That's what the law was all about, wasn't it? Go ahead and give it a try. See if by changing your external behavior, you can change who you are on the inside. And we couldn't do it. And to this day, an incredible amount of us, still sadly by into the lie, that if I can just change my outward behavior, it, it will change who I am. And then life and the grace of God has a way of shining a light on us that causes us to realize I can't fix who I am internally. I need to be made new, I need to be made new. I need Jesus, only he can do that. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, stop looking with your eyes and start opening your heart to me. If you do that, man, you will see the kingdom come within you. When God comes into our lives, he begins making all things new internally. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not yet at the point where we're made new externally. The Apostle Paul said it like this. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I love that phrase. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And by the way, this is why it's so powerful when we gather together as a church, when we gather as a men's group or a woman's group, when you gather with other believers for fellowship or or a meal. The thing that's going on that's profound is that the kingdom of God is there. The kingdom of God is there. Where the king is, there is the kingdom. And so when we gather like this, It's not that the kingdom is up there. The kingdom is here when we meet in his name. That's profound and the implications of that and what is available to us, knowing that the kingdom is here. I don't think we have any idea what's really available to us. Verse 22, then he said to the disciples, now he turns away from the Pharisees and addresses his boys, the ones that he knows care about him and are following him. And this bears some resemblance to a famous speech Jesus gave called the Olivet Discourse, but it's not the same event. So we'll study the Olivet Discourse separately when we get there. Jesus tells them, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Guys, things are going to get difficult. They're going to get a lot worse before they get better. Don't be surprised by that. You're going to have days when you long for my return. I think we can all say amen to that, right? Verse 23, and they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says of his return, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. If they say to you, hey, hey, Jesus has come back. It's one of my favorite things to point out. I always feel sorry for them when I pointed out that Jehovah's Witnesses in the Watchtower magazine as a matter of official record have thrice incorrectly claimed that Jesus has returned to the earth. When they did it the third time, they decided to just stick with it. And they have maintained since then, and go look this up, official policy, surprisingly not highly publicized but their official policy is that Jesus has returned and he's in their headquarters in Chicago living since about 1976 and so Jesus says if they tell you Jesus has come back he's out in the desert he says don't go if they tell you he he's returned he's taken the form of an enlightened monk at an ashram up in the mountains of tibet jesus says Save yourself some money. Don't make the trip. When I come back, he's saying it's going to be global, it's going to be epic, and it's not going to be something you need to worry about missing. I really imagine Jesus chuckling as he says, um, You don't need to worry. You're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. Everyone's going to know something's happened. You're going to know. And Jesus has to be thinking, uh, Yeah, you'll know when when you physically leave the ground, when you transcend dimensions, that'll be your clue that something has taken place. You'll know, you'll know. Verse 25, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before the glory of that day, I've got some business to attend to, guys. I'm, I'm here now to be the suffering servant. That's what's on the agenda this time around. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You say, when I come again, when I come from my church to rapture my church, those who did not believe in me will be going about their business just like it's any other day. They'll be shopping, they'll be working, they'll be eating and drinking, getting married, starting new farms, starting businesses. They, they won't think it's any type of extraordinary season in history. They'll have no idea what's about to happen. And if you studied through Revelation with us, you'll know that What's about to happen after the rapture is absolutely devastating. The judgment of God literally poured out on the earth. And Jesus says, those who don't believe me won't even see it coming. Just as they mocked and laughed at Noah for a 100 years, you're building a boat? A boat? There's a boatload of evidence, by the way, that it had never even rained. And they're thinking, you're... You're building a boat? You're you're nowhere near water. Jesus says, just like that. They were laughing at Noah up until the day it started raining. Just like Lot's own sons-in-law wouldn't listen to him when he told them, you gotta flee the city. God's about to destroy Sodom. Jesus says, it's gonna be like that. They won't listen. They won't listen no matter how much I warn them. And I would suggest that we see this even in the church, that there'll be those who will be taken because they love Jesus, but right before they're taken, their stance on the rapture and the millennium and all that will be like, oh, come on. Everything's going on like it has been. You crazy folks at New Hope Church, you've been talking about Jesus coming back for years. Give it a rest. Everything keeps moving forward, just doesn't always has. At least they'll be with us when we get to say, I told you so. I Praise God for that. No. The day of the rapture, so make a note of this. The day of the rapture will seem like any other day to those who don't know the Lord. The day of the rapture will seem like any other day to those who don't know the Lord. Such will be the degree of their spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness. And if you read everything the Bible says about the season of history, it's going to be, it's going to be madness and, and we can see this happening already. I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but I describe it to people like, I feel like we're all like the frog that's being boiled in hot water in that our world is on fire right now and we don't perceive it. We, we don't perceive it because it's just been turned up slowly and slowly and it's just been happening all over and the stories just seem to have always been there. Already it feels like, haven't there always been Muslim extremists blowing stuff up every weekend? Hasn't it always been, it hasn't always been like that. Hasn't there always been volcanoes going off and devastating disasters happening every year? No. And we forget that the, the world is on fire right now but still, where we are for most people. It's just any other day, any other day. And you can be signs all around us and we just don't see because we were there as the temperature got turned up, turned up. Noah and his family are warned that judgment is coming to the earth and they're provided with a means of escape. You know, when they go into the ark, it's the Lord who closes the door. They're safe and secure. They can't even leave if they want to. So let me ask you, Do Noah and his family get into the ark halfway through the flood? When the water is 50 feet deep, then they get into the ark. Do they get into the ark after the flood is over? Of course not. The purpose of the ark is their preservation. That's the purpose of the ark. And I just say that as a fun dig for those who say, well, you know, I think we're gonna be raptured halfway through the tribulation. That's like getting into the ark halfway through the flood. That's not what the ark is for. Well, I think we're gonna be raptured at the end of the tribulation. Well, a lot of good that's gonna do us then. The point of the rapture is our preservation (laughs) during the tribulation, that's the whole point. Likewise, in Sodom and Gomorrah, you read the story in Genesis 19, do you realize that the angels who are sent to bring that judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah have been told by God that they cannot bring judgment on the city until Lot and his family are removed? It is a prerequisite condition It's got nothing to do with Lot's timing or if he runs fast enough. They cannot bring judgment on the city till Lot is removed from the city to the place of safety. Lot's the picture of the believer because unbelievably, Peter tells us in the New Testament that Lot was a righteous man. And if you read Genesis 19, he's one messed up righteous man. But there's hope for all of us because Lot was counted as righteous for the same reasons you and I are the goodness and the grace of God and our faith in his grace and goodness. Lot didn't die in Sodom just because he had the misfortune of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, no. You see, the Lord removed him. He did what he always does. He removes the believer before he pours out his judgment. Verse 31, Jesus says, in that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take him away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. And then he connects these two examples together with this phrase, remember Lot's wife. Remember that strange incident as Lot is being led by the hand, by these angels, out of Sodom as fire is raining from the sky, destroying the city. They're told, don't look back, and Lot's wife looks back. She turns into a pillar of salt, you go, man, that seems sort of harsh. But it was simply a revelation of something much deeper that was going on. You see, she didn't just look back out of concern, she looked back out of love and devotion because that was her whole world. She wasn't excited to be being freed from the place of evil. Her heart was fully given to that place. She loved it. It's where her treasure was. And so she's mourning as she's being pulled out of a place that is wicked and depraved she's grieving over it she's a picture of a person who god is trying to rapture and they're going Argh! Argh! let me get my phone that's what she is and she's not saved because she wasn't saved She wasn't saved. And so what Jesus is saying, listen, when the rapture happens, if your response is, oh man, the rapture's happening, Uh," and you go to grab some stuff, or your first response is like, oh man, I can't believe I never had time to, he's saying, listen, if that's your response, don't worry about it. You're gonna be left behind. You'll get your wish. You'll get to stay. Because if that's what you really want, then your heart doesn't belong to God anyway. Because when your heart belongs to God, when the rapture happens, your response will be, finally, let's go home. Let's go home. Drop whatever you got, let's go. He's saying, listen, don't turn back. But even more than that, don't find yourself with a heart that wants to turn back because then you will get to stay where your heart is, right here, right here. And you don't wanna be here when that happens. Write this down, Jesus counsels us to ensure our hearts are in heaven and not tied up in things on the earth. Counsels us to ensure our hearts are in heaven. What did Jesus say? Just the simple truth, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And then Jesus says in verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. If you spend your life trying to save yourself, satisfy yourself, bulletproof your life, build a fortress down here, Jesus says you'll end up losing everything. You're still gonna die. None of it's gonna go with you. But if you'll give your life to Jesus, if you'll lose your life, well, he'll give you life forever. You'll gain life like you've never known before. He says, I tell you, in that night, the night of the rapture, there'll be two men in one bed. And in our day and age, I gotta point this out, it's not a commentary on the gay lifestyle. It's simply a reference to the mat-like sleeping areas that were used by multiple people at the same time. Most homes had one bed this square area and everybody slept on one bed if you had brothers anything you're all sleeping on one bed that's what it's talking about so it says there'll be two men in one bed the one will be taken underline taken and the other will be left two women will be grinding together like grinding wheat the one will be taken underline taken and the other left two men will be in the field the one will be taken and the other left So the first thing I want to point out is the time of day this is taking place is very, very interesting because we see some sleeping, that's night. but Then we see some grinding wheat to make bread and that's what they would do early in the morning, before breakfast, after the sun had risen though. And then we see others working in a field. This is the main part of the day and this is fascinating to me. All this to say, these specifics are given to us so that 2,000 years later, we would be able to deduce that this is an event that is happening instantaneously, simultaneously, globally. It's happening at the same time all around the world. And that's amazing because at this time in history, nobody has figured out yet that the world is round. Nobody's figured that out. Nobody knows that it's day on the other side of the earth when it's night on the other side. Nobody knows that yet. But the Lord knew, and he put it in his word. And that's why the the deeper you dig into the word of God, the more you discover that science is actually always playing catch up to the word of God, always. The Bible has commentaries on dimensional realities that uh, quantum physics and theoretical science is only beginning to scratch the surface of right now. Bible has profound, profound scientific insight in it. So write this down. The rapture will be an instantaneous, simultaneous, global event. And without getting too sidetracked, we obviously believe this is a reference to the rapture. Some of you may be aware that there's other camps that hold Jesus is talking about here the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD but I really think the language suggests otherwise specifically the use of the word taken for Bible students you'll be aware that whenever a word is repeated in the Bible whenever the word seems to be redundant Jesus is saying I really want you to notice this this is the emphasis and so what is the emphasis in this text it's one word it's the word taken it shows up three times in three consecutive verses. And the Greek word for taken that's used there is para lambano. and it's the word used by the angel to tell Joseph to take Mary as his bride. It's the word used to describe Jesus taking Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the word used by Jesus when he says to his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, Paralambano you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wherever this word is used, it's always about moving someone from one place to another and it's always a journey of ascent. It's to somewhere higher, not geographically, but spiritually, always. I think it's fairly clear that the emphasis in this text is that you and I want to be among those who are taken. I really believe the verbiage speaks to the rapture and nothing to do with 70 AD. Verse 37, it says, And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you. This is one of those rare verses that, pretty much nobody understands absolutely nobody and what makes it even more confusing is that the word eagles is actually better translated as vultures which only complicates matters there are like several really 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 weak explanations I heard I was listening to one pastor I really thought he was going to have something good for me and he said he said you know what does it mean I don't know but I do know this They that wait on the Lord will mount up on wings as of eagles. And I was like, oh, come on, come on. That's not an explanation. And uh, he still got his amens, though, so I probably should have just gone with that. But uh, I just want to tell you straight up, there's very, very weak explanations for this. I did the research. I have no idea what it's talking about. And so I'm most comfortable saying this verse is a mystery that is going to be revealed at a later time. I'm absolutely confident of that but I'm not gonna try and twist and turn it into something it doesn't actually say. Maybe in our men's and women's groups we can do a little digging this week and see what we can come up with. Well, we're almost done, thank you, you've been so patient. The Jewish rabbis believe, and I think accurately, in the concept of a remes. A remes is a deeper, hidden truth that lies beneath a portion of scripture waiting to be excavated and discovered. It, it's not about finding an alternate explanation. That's not what a remes is. When you've dealt with issues like, what was the intent of the writer? What did the writer want to communicate? What did God want us to understand from this? Why did God put this in the Bible? What's the primary application? When you've dealt with that, in our Western mindset, we tend to sort of say, well, then everything's exhausted. We, we've, it served its purpose. But what we find in, in the richness of the scriptures is that sometimes there's something even deeper and if you've become a student of the Bible then you know that the Bible is just inexhaustible and sometimes you find these treasures, this remes, and this is one of the most profound ones in the Bible because Jesus chooses to reference two Time periods to describe what the atmosphere is going to be like on the earth in the days preceding the rapture and the unleashing of the tribulation time period. He chooses the days of Lot and he chooses the days of Noah. And I've actually taught on the remes of the days of Lot. I've taught on this hidden meaning that's in there, and we walk through Genesis 19. If you haven't heard that, it's on the website. Just go put in days of Lot. Uh, You'll probably have to go to the website to listen to it. I may never teach it again. I may never be allowed to teach it again. Uh, If you listen to the message, you'll understand why. It's probably the most incorrect uh, message you could ever teach. The days of Noah is something I've never taught on before, partially because it is so, so strange. Because the thing that defines the days of Noah, in addition to this rampant evil on the earth, this unwillingness to listen to the message being preached by Noah, who the New Testament tells us was a preacher of righteousness. The other defining characteristic of the days of Noah is the presence of these strange beings known as the Nephilim, these half-fallen angel, half-human hybrids that are described in Genesis 6 and in other places in scripture. And even as I just say that in passing, you're like, okay, I get why you don't teach that. Yeah, I understand. It is a subject that takes you into all kinds of strange corners of world history, from the pyramids to the myths of demigods and titans to aliens, unexplained paranormal phenomenon, the appearance of hyper-advanced technologies thousands of years before they reappeared again in linear chronological history, All these strange things are related to the days of Noah. And how might that connect to the present day that we live in? Well, you know, our church has become known for our views on the end times and our literal approach to the scriptures. And I've reached the point where I'm sufficiently convinced that everyone who would think us weird if we taught on the days of Noah already thinks we're weird, so we're just gonna go for it and do that next week. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your compassion for us, your love for us, Lord, that that in a world that really is on fire, instead of holding up our hands and saying, what is going on? We can take a step back and go, Father, thank you so much that our redemption is drawing near as we see these things coming to fruition. And that, Lord, your plan is not to simply let the earth slowly burn forever, but that, Lord, things are accelerating by your design because you won't wait forever. You won't listen to the cries of your children forever. You've heard them all and you are coming. You're coming for your church, God, you're coming for the world that you created. You're coming. It's really gonna happen. Father, may our hearts be so in heaven already that there is not an ounce of us that looks back when you come for us, Jesus. God, we cannot wait. And we pray that you would fill us with boldness, with your energy, through your spirit, Lord, to do the work while it's still day here, God. That we would preach, that we would witness with our lives and with our words that you are the risen Savior, that you're the hope of the world. Father, we love you. We bless you. We honor you. And we pray that even as we move into groups to pray, Lord, in just a moment, that you would be honored by us just doing that that we do this because we really believe that the kingdom is among us. We really believe that when we speak, you hear us. We really believe that as we call upon you as our heavenly father, you look down on us as your sons and daughters with love. And God, you act because you love us. We really believe that, Lord. May that bless you and honor you today. May you be pleased with our love for you, Lord God and our belief in your love for us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that, and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing. Go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at and let us know how God has impacted your life through His Word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it.